You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. What's up, everybody? Happy hump day. It's a solo Spain show tonight. Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Going to have a bit of a guest palooza situation tonight to cover all the many stories going on across the sports world. A lot of people focused, of course, on NBA free agency starting tomorrow at 6 p.m. Eastern. It's ESPN Radio presented by Progressive Insurance, and that's where we're going to start. We're going to talk to Bobby Marks later. There might even be some moves or things leaked that will happen before we get to him later in the show. But for now, I'm going to talk about some of the things that I've got my eye on, some of the teams that I'll be watching most closely ahead of the deadline and, and in fact, after the deadline, um, moving through the offseason. Uh Obviously, we've spent a whole lot of time talking about the Brooklyn Nets and Kyrie Irving's decision to opt in is not a conclusion to really much of anything. It felt like posturing on his behalf to offer up the possibility of leaving when there really weren't any teams other than maybe the Lakers who could have done uh, a, a move for him then. So so he takes this much better monetary option and they really just kick the can down the road. But as Tim Bontemps said on Greeny, this is still the best situation as far as the Nets are concerned. Who knows where this will go from here because, as I've said a bunch of times, any question that involves Kyrie Irving, the only true answer is maybe in any direction, right? You just don't know where it's going to go. But this is what the Nets wanted. Kyrie Irving on a short-term commitment to be on the team next year. That means Kevin Durant's on the team next year. That means this team has a championship roster, right? This is not – I'm not saying they're going to win the championship – but they've got a team that's capable of contending for a title with Kevin Durant, with Kyrie Irving, with Ben Simmons, with the pieces they have around them, and frankly, with some options to go get some more help around them this offseason. So to me, this is really the best-case scenario for the Nets. Kyrie Irving on a short-term deal, Kevin Durant on the team, the Nets having a shot. Yeah, I mean, that's what's so odd and obvious with this situation with Kyrie is he's such a talented player. You want him on the team but you have no clue what you're getting and you're hoping that the distance provided from the real direst of circumstances around COVID and the inability to play every game and the vaccination and all of the things that contributed to his being available for fewer games than he has uh, missed in his tenure with the Nets are, are gone now and you get a good look. And, and that's really why they kicked the can down the road because if some of the issues continue where he's not available to play and can't be counted on, they still have the option of saying, yeah, we don't want this guy and we're certainly not giving him a long-term deal. And that's something that Bleacher Report's Jake Fisher talked about on Canty and Carlin. Uh, sorry, that's what Bobby Marks talked about on Keyshawn, J. Will, and Max. That's something we're probably talking about in like January, February. Mm-hmm. If the mm-hmm. things go off the tracks here in Brooklyn, things go really south here where you're just, if you're the Nets and you're thinking, you know what? We're not going to sign this guy next year. Can we get a first or second round pick, even if it means taking Russell Westbrook back? You know, I think that's 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 a discussion for December and January. That's not a discussion right now. Yeah, I mean, figuring out how much he's available is going to make all the decisions for them. And then beyond that, what is Ben Simmons? Is he a useful piece? Uh, is he both mentally and physically capable of contributing to this team? How does Kevin Durant feel about currently being tied to this team through 37 years old and whether he wants and believes that he can contend for a title there with Kyrie or otherwise? You've also got a whole lot of folks that are potentially out. Bruce Brown is an unrestricted free agent. Uh, Patty Mills has a player option. You've got Nick Claxton. You have to figure out, I think, all of their bigs 
are currently free agents. So other things that still need to be figured out for the Nets as well. Kyrie opting in is just the beginning of this. Uh, NBA free agency technically begins tomorrow, 6 p.m. Eastern. I'll also, of course, be watching my Bulls. Listen, Zach Levine, as far as impact goes, may not technically be a max player. But at this point in the NBA, you either have to have a certain number of great contributing superstars to be in the mix or you're out. And while you may feel like the Bulls are going to overpay him a bit on that five-year $212 million max, the other option is losing him, losing him for nothing as an unrestricted free agent. And a team that made the strides that they made last season, going out and getting DeMar DeRozan, seeing how those two guys played together and that he was injured down the stretch and may still get better and improve with the right team around him, the right coach, the right front office, I would much rather see the Bulls overpay a little bit than lose them all together. Now that's going to be up to Zach Levine, but the fact that he makes so much more money by deciding to stay with the Bulls, it would be a shock to me if he wanted to go elsewhere. It would be, he's been a little bit non-committal and maybe there's dreams of playing in another market. But to me, five years, 212 million on a team that when you get back Lonzo Ball, Alex Caruso, when you're healthy, you've got a real shot. I don't see Zach Levine going anywhere, but of course you never know. So I'm keeping my eye on that. I'm always keeping an eye on the Knicks. I'm always keeping an eye on the Knicks fans too to see what delusional things our sad sack media folks can throw their way just so they can be disappointed. And it's as much our fault. I'm not only blaming Knicks fans for being delusional. It's the media constantly using the Knicks name and the lure of MSG, a place that all of the players currently playing were not born when it had the, the real luster and draw that the media likes to pretend it still has. But now it's the Jalen Brunson conversation. The Knicks hire his father as a coach. They start making moves around the draft and, in, and, and around their roster to make room for him. And everyone's talking about Jalen Brunson to the Knicks. But now we're hearing maybe the Heat are interested. Could it all fall apart for the Knicks before it even begins? I will be watching that. And I will, of course, be watching what that means for the Mavs. Brunson was really important in their postseason run. And whether you believe that he can replicate those numbers moving forward or not, he's going to get paid like it. And you're going to feel that loss if you're the Mavs. Jake Fisher from Bleacher Report was on Canty and Carlin talking about what the Mavs can do if Brunson does end up leaving to the Knicks or elsewhere. They're in a bit of a bind. And I think they'll try to figure out ways to turn this into a sign trade where they potentially don't take back any player salary, so they create a traded player exception, which they could use. I mean, that's a mechanism that uh, Portland used to take in Jeremy Grant, for example, very recently. Um, they're going to get Tim Hardaway Jr. back from injury. They're going to look at him as a, as a big potential offseason uh, quote-unquote addition. And I would think Jalen Brunson heading to New York also opens the door for Luka Doncic, his countryman, Goran Dragic. Uh, to finally make his way to Dallas after that's been kind of rumored to be a possible landing spot for him dating back to last offseason. It's Spain and Fitz, solo Spain tonight, talking about some of the teams I've got my eye on ahead of and during free agency. NBA free agency starts tomorrow at 6 p.m. Eastern. couple divorces, potentially. Everybody's got their eye on DeAndre Ayton. He was frustrated when the Suns refused to offer him that rookie max extension. Uh, he was benched, you remember, in the playoffs by Monty Williams, who, who didn't find his play to be up to snuff. 
Uh, the conversations around the end of that season there with the Suns really disappointing. And is it beyond repair? Is it possible that that was the end of that time? And if so, who can Phoenix get for him to pair with Chris Paul while they're still believing their window might be open? And and maybe do they look for a young point guard that would, would replace Chris Paul for when that time has passed? The Suns could have a big swing here where we still consider them in the mix or dropping out and looking to rebuild. Same goes for a divorce potentially with Utah. Is Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert, and all of the drama around them finally over? Quinn Snyder's gone now. they got to find a new coach. And will they decide that that duo is just never going to make it work? And which one of them do they prioritize keeping and moving forward with? And does that mean you've got a pretty big name in one of those two guys out on the market potentially going elsewhere? So many other teams to keep an eye on. I want to hear what you have to say, too, at Spain and Fitz, at Sarah Spain, your bold prediction for NBA free agency. What's the boldest thing that you actually think is realistic that could happen? It's Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, presented by Progressive Insurance. Save when you bundle motorcycle, RV, and boat insurance. Visit Progressive.com. Coming up, Brittany Griner's been in Russia awaiting trial since February. Is she any closer to getting home? And what's next? We'll sit down and talk to somebody with uh, who's done really great reporting on this. It's coming up next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz, solo Spain tonight on ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. We've been following along for months now with the Brittany Griner case, and the latest update was not only heartbreaking, heartbreaking in the video that we saw of Brittany handcuffed going to a preliminary hearing this week, uh, but the news that with her trial starting Friday, they've extended her detention for six months pending the results of the trial, trial which could take weeks, could take months, um, with a high likelihood of her not being acquitted. To get some more details on this, ESPN investigative reporter has done a fantastic job on this story, senior writer as well, TJ Quinn. TJ, thanks for the time. Yeah, glad to do it. Let's talk about this trial. Uh, I saw the Associated Press report that fewer than 1% of Russian criminal cases result in acquittals. It's not likely that this trial is um, legitimate. I guess I would think. Yes? Um, I don't like to speak in absolutes, but I've talked to a lot of people. There is no chance this is legitimate. There's no chance she's acquitted. Um, Now that I say that, of course, she will be. But um, it's everyone I spoke to, Russian legal experts, U.S. officials, um, they all expect that it's just a complete show trial. Um, I did speak to one person who said there is maybe a one in a billion chance that Russia could see it as an off ramp and, and a quitter and let her go. But I mean, that's that's about as, as fantastical as it gets. Um, she is a bargaining chip. She is essentially a hostage, even though that's not the official term. There are specific requirements for the government to call her that. Um but they do this because this is what gives the Russian government leverage. They have to pretend that this is a legitimate proceeding. Um, if you're a normal defendant in Russia, uh, like a, one expert I spoke to today, your best strategy is just plead guilty and hope for the best. People don't get acquitted. And if Russian judges acquit too many people, they're forced out of office. So, mm. yeah, there, there's almost no chance she's acquitted uh, there. Everyone is expecting a guilty verdict and then sentencing. And if she is a political pawn, a hostage, as you say, and she has been deemed by the U.S. government to be unlawfully detained, 
then the expectation that any fairness in the sentencing would be unlikely as well. And it could be up to 10 years. So would they maximize and flex that muscle to make it even more difficult for her to be to be swapped for or taken out by making the sentence as strict as possible? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like the people around her are prepared for that. And this this is why you have legal counsel in Russia. Um, you know, it's, it's not a successful defense is not getting an acquittal. It just doesn't happen. A successful defense is reducing the sentence. So the lawyers that she's got, it's supposed to be a very good veteran team. You don't want a public defender over there. Um, a public defender is usually, I mean, I've heard numerous people tell me this. They work hand in hand with the prosecutors. It's, you know, they, mm. they so essentially they work for the prosecutors. So she's got a real legal team that's looking out for her. And they've got these ongoing discussions with prosecutors, with you know, the, with the legal system, trying to just make conditions for her as good as possible. That really is the best outcome. Everything about the length of the sentence, about the length of the detention, whatever they say, it really is meaningless. There is a negotiation that's ongoing. Um, Russia needs to do this so it looks like it's legitimate. Um, but it really doesn't change what it comes down to. And that's Russia wants somebody in return for her. Um, and it's up to the White House and the Kremlin to come up with a deal that they can live with. So when we hear about the extension of the six months for her detention, that's meaningless anyway, yes? Because it, there is no yeah. situation where she would be released any sooner, uh, regardless of the trial or any... I mean, at this point, she's been there for months for a trial about whether or not she had a vape pen. That If right. it were legitimate, exactly. it would be figured out by now. It's, I, I mean, it's, it, it would seem like a pretty straightforward case, right? She either had vape cartridges with hashish oil or she didn't. And, uh, you know, they, they've never presented evidence that she did. Um, but the reality is it doesn't matter what evidence they have. They will present evidence, and it's entirely possible. Maybe she didn't do exactly what they said. Maybe what they, you know, maybe she actually did try to bring it into the country she violated Russian law on paper. It doesn't matter. That's not the intention of this proceeding to get justice for her. The intention is to maximize Russian leverage in a negotiation. So if they don't have solid evidence, then what they've got is specious or made up evidence, which they may well have. They've done it before. Um, you know, people talk about problems with the legal system in this country. No question. But it's, you know, this is a whole different ballgame. Russia manufactures evidence for political purposes. It's very well established. Um, you know, in, in some ways, it's, it really works against her interest to put up much of a defense. If she puts up a vigorous defense, then it could backfire. And mm. it, it could be embarrassing to the court, and they could punish her more harshly as mm. a result. I mean, the, the timing of the negotiation, that's its own beast, right? That's separate from the legal proceedings. But her conditions in the meantime, that's something that's important and that is negotiable. If if she makes their life hard, you could expect that they would make her life hard in the meantime, too. But if she's more cooperative, then, again, the experts I've spoken to said they, you know, she could make her life a little easier in the meantime. T.J. Quinn, ESPN investigative reporter and senior writer with me here now in Spain and fit solo Spain at T.J. Quinn. ESPN is where you can follow him. Do we know anything about the conditions? I think that's one of the most horrific things when I think about this is 
I don't know if she's allowed to have a book or a television, if anyone speaks English around her, what she's allowed to eat. We just don't know what her days look like, do we? Well, we've got, I mean, anything we hear, we've got to take with a grain of salt. Even if you're hearing it from, from people around her or the U.S. government, you know, everyone's got an agenda here. And even if it's an agenda somebody might agree with, um, it's in their interest not to stir things up. What we've been told is that she's doing okay considering. Her lawyers get to see her a couple times a week. So, you know, the people around Brittany know that, you know, they've, they've got eyes on her. They know she's all right. They've been able to exchange some letters that her lawyers bring back and forth. Um, they're heavily monitored. So, you know, they know they, you can't speak freely, but at least it's some communication. Yeah. Um, according to Russians, she's reading and loving Russian literature. Um, oh, of course. Which, right. So, right. of course, now she's a Dostoevsky and Tolstoy fan. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, um, TJ, you know, so, we have about a minute left, so I want to ask you quickly, and TJ Quinn is with me here. How likely is it that they would make the swap that's the one we're hearing about? Um, I don't know if they'll make this specific deal we've heard for this guy named Victor Boot, who's in a U.S. prison for financing terrorism. Everyone I've told, I've spoken to said they expect a deal to be cut. That's okay. how this will end. Yeah. It, will it be tomorrow? Will it be in three years? That we don't know. And finally, 30 seconds or less, does the public pressure make a difference right now? They used to say keep it quiet. Now they're saying get loud. Does it make a difference? Uh, from what I'm hearing, it does. Um, that the Biden administration is well aware of the, of the political pressure on this, um, but it's it's the tightrope they've got to walk is there's another American there, Paul Whelan, who has mm. been there for three years. And so part of the pressure is, yes, people want Brittany Griner to come home, but how do you bring one and not the other? Absolutely. So there is pressure. It's supposed to, you know, from what I hear, it is helping push things. Um, but you just don't know until a deal is cut. TJ, keep doing the excellent work on this. I keep sending everyone to you because you're giving it to everybody straight and, and in intelligently. So appreciate it. And thanks for the time. Uh, anytime. I really appreciate it. TJ Quinn at TJ Quinn ESPN is where you can follow his continued excellent work on this. Coming up, 50th anniversary of Title IX was last week. Our next guest is a champion of the monumental law and will talk to us about how it's working, how it's not, and her incredible leadership position. That's pretty rare. It's coming up next. Spain and Fitz. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz, solo Spain with you tonight on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance, and all month we've been talking about the 50th anniversary of Title IX at the ESPNW Summit back in May. I said, does everybody also have the months after Title IX's anniversary, the years after Title IX's anniversary marked on their calendar to keep talking about it? Because this moment is both a moment of recognition of how far we've come in the 50 years since the law was passed, but also uh, the failures in compliance and the ground still left to cover even 50 years in. To talk about all of that, Gloria Navarra's West Coast Conference Commissioner joins me now, the first Latin American to become commish of an NCAA D1 conference, um, someone very involved in a lot of the aspects of uh, not just enforcing Title IX, but the NCAA Transformation Committee and other uh, intersectional ideas. So, Gloria, thanks so much for, for joining me. And I wonder, uh, I learned a ton throughout the last couple months, uh, particularly the failures across Title IX, as you celebrated last week, was it more a recognition of how far we've come or how far we have yet to go for you? <laughs> I feel you on that, Sarah, and thank you for having <laughs> me and talking about the issue. <laughs> 
Um, it was a, a lot of both, frankly. Yeah. You know, on the one hand, I'm part of this, the NCAA's transformation committee effort. And in those meetings, I'm constantly reminded, you know, and thankful. Thankfully, we have Title IX. So it is in the forefront. So we are celebrating it. So it is a mandate. On the other hand, we all know we still have so much work to do. And sports more and more these days are, are becoming the landscape for political issues. And, you know, I just don't want to lose the basic fundamental idea that women in these academic environments have the same opportunities and rights as their male counterparts to participate in college sports. Yeah, let's talk about the NCAA because it's fascinating that the decision that came from the Supreme Court was actually penned by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is constantly fighting for women's rights, but eventually did make the argument years ago that the NCAA does not directly receive funding, even though its member schools do, and therefore is not officially required to be compliant with Title IX. How do you sort of force their hand uh, and make it so that if they're going to claim to be an academic institution who relies on amateurism and the student athlete, and that's why they can't pay anyone, uh, that they also should then be compliant in the sense of Title IX and, and how it intersects with, with education and sports. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's, it's clearer if you break up the three entities, right? There's the national, NCAA National Home Office, and they're responsible for national championship events. Then there's conference offices like ours, and we're responsible for our conference championship events and league play. And then there's campus. Campuses are have to apply or comply with Title IX, right? They receive federal funds, must comply. Conferences don't technically have to either. But I will tell you, I feel we do largely across the 32-division conference a really good job of modeling what our schools do and making sure we have equitable championship experiences at the conference level. Not because we have to, but because we are a product of our membership schools. And that, I think, is the gap that the NCAA home office needs to get or needs to bridge and what became tra uh, came to light around the women's Final Four two years ago is just thinking about themselves as the megaphone for our campuses and needing to provide that same experience. West Coast Conference Commissioner Gloria Navarez is with me here. What are some of the other things you're talking about on that NCAA Transformation Committee? What are some of the big challenges and focuses? <laughs> what aren't we talking about? Yeah. Really? <laughs> How long do you have? <laughs> <laughs> you know, right now we um, just vetted out in the membership and concepts around the transfer uh, portal and, you know, roster management. Also, the area of enforcement. I think we know that a lot of improvements can be made in that area. And in the weeks and months to come, we are getting deep into student-athlete benefits, Division One membership requirements, um, and everything that stems from being a Division One member. And I would imagine there's some talk around NIL as well. Uh, the wild, wild west portion continues, but it does feel like yeah. some regulation may be on the way. What would you say, uh, as we near, in a couple days, the one-year anniversary of the NIL era, some of the bright spots and then maybe the challenges have been? Yeah, the bright spots, I think, is allowing student-athletes to monetize their name, image, likeness. I, I have liked some of the deals that I've seen, especially on the women's side, based yeah. on pure... Um, athletic ability or social personality, you know, it's not all based on my, maybe what they're looking like or what clothes they wear. And that, to me, is, is a positive. 
the challenge is we, we me personally speaking as Commissioner WCC, Gloria Navarro, um, I would like to see, you know, the Alston case left the door open for us to regulate and prevent pay for play. And I would like to see us put that genie back in the bottle. Um, that is the rule right now with name, image, likeness. But I think with all the headlines and all the chatter out there, it, it seems that a lot of folks are using NLI to pay for play. So right. we we need to wrangle that in. I believe there are nine female conference commissioners right now. Gloria, is that right? Correct. In Division One, Gloria Navarre is one of the nine, uh, the West Coast Conference commissioner. Uh, have you felt surprised or were you able to predict the challenges that might come at, at being a minority, both as a Latin American, but as a woman in your job? I, I was pleasantly surprised in that I felt who I am became a, a celebration or a place of acknowledgement as opposed to a challenge that I had to overcome. And that was right. a pleasant surprise to me. Um, again, I don't think we see women still at an equitable place when you talk about Power Five conferences and institutions. We certainly have folks that are ready and are in the pipeline, but we, we still haven't gotten the numbers sitting in the chair at those levels. So we, we still have a long way to go there. It's Spain and Fitz Solo Spain with you on ESPN Radio talking to Gloria Navarez. You can follow her at Glow Navarez. Let's talk about the Russell rule. In 2020, the WCC established it uh, honoring Bill Russell, and it requires member institutions to include a member of a traditionally underrepresented community in the pool of final candidates for athletic director, senior administrator, head coach, full-time assistant coaching positions. Uh, have you seen the results of that in the short time since it was implemented? Yes, and again, very pleasantly surprised. We had 84 hires across our league in that one cycle. That was, you know, one calendar year based on the academic year. 81 of them met the Russell Rule, but the, the Russell Rule is just an interview commitment. I mean, not just, but really, we're, we're not, it's not telling the schools who they have to hire. But we had a 51% hire through rate. In other words, those candidates got in the finalist pool, and 51% of the time they ended up getting the job. Wow. Which, to me, really spoke to the commitment. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like it's working. What are you doing in the WCC that's different from other conferences beyond that? Is there something else you want to hype yourself and your conference up on? <laughs> I thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> you know, we've all struggled through COVID. Um, and for who we are, we're the small private schools on the West Coast, you know, Gonzaga, Pepperdine, LMU, St. Mary's, and, you know, without without counting BYU, they're leaving us for the Big 12. We average about 30, like 5,000 undergrad enrollment, but yet we still win national titles. You know, Santa Clara women's soccer, Pepperdine men's golf, you know, cross country. Folks know our schools, and it's just, it's an amazing accomplishment given everything that we've gotten going on and committing to these social justice platforms and, and other things. Well, Gloria, I've already enlisted Nina King, the uh, the AD over at Duke, yes. to help me to help me with this Title IX compliance. I've literally I don't know exactly know what a task force mean 
means, but I've said I'm putting together a task force, and my goal is to try to have better transparency across the, the prongs that schools allege that they are in compliance with, across the transparency of the numbers that they report, not double and triple counting individual athletes, not counting male participants on practice squads as women. All of the stuff that has been going on, I think now at 50 years we could stop patting ourselves on the back and actually start employing uh, and, and implying the law as it, as it was supposed to be intended. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to go ahead and grab you now. I've just signed you up for it. Hope you're hope you're on board. Absolutely. Count me in. Good. It's always good to do that on live radio so that, you know, it would look bad yes. if you if you turn me down. <laughs> uh, Gloria, thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for covering the topic. Of course. Gloria Navarra is West Coast Conference Commissioner with me here on Spain and Fitz. Coming up, speaking of awesome women, Abby Wambach joined me on my podcast. We had a really fascinating conversation about what it is to demand your worth without guilt and also how to balance that with a desire to grow women's sports and advocate for the things you care about. It's coming up next on Spain and Fitz. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz, Solo Spain with you on a Wednesday on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. If you're not already a follower slash subscriber to my podcast, get on that. That's what she said with Sarah Spain. You can find it wherever you get your podcast. Go ahead and hit that subscribe and follow button. Um, my conversation this week is with Abby Wambach, and we talk about Title IX and women's sports and all sorts of other things, and really her life and the incredible pivot point from athlete to now podcaster and activist. But this particular part of the conversation that I wanted to play in today's Nod to the Pod is about her wife, Glennon Doyle, kind of living in the future and urging her to demand more money when she get, gets offers, to be able to accept her worth without guilt, and to not feel like she always has to be the martyr for the causes about which she cares, that there's a balance there. Um, we had a great conversation about that. Here's the Nod to the Pod. Here's this week's Nod to the Pod. So I'm a professional speaker. Um, I have a speaking agency and they email me with offers, right? And I discuss everything in my life with Glennon. So I go to Glennon and I say, do you see this offer? And Glennon is five years down the road. Okay. And she is, she's like, no, like that, that's not what you're worth. You're worth this. And my experience in, in, in sport right? Is just to take whatever you've got. So I have been, and what happens is I get riddled with this fear that if I don't say yes to this, it's all going to go away. I will never get another offer in the whole world. And so she just said to me one day, she said, I am going to give you an exercise that maybe you want to do. Maybe you don't just say no to a couple and see what happens. And so I said no to a couple of offers that were lower than what I wanted. And wouldn't you know, the next week, the offers came in higher. And I was like, <laughs> so you're telling me all this time, all I needed to say was no. She said, yes, because when you say yes, you're also saying no to a future self in some ways. And I think, like it's just been so mind blowing and and obviously there's a balance right like you can't say no i want right. a bazillion dollars like and you know right. like there's a balance and trying to manage those is part of what makes life so confusing at times but the idea of of actually sitting with figuring out what you feel like you're worth and then honoring yourself right. with decisions and not letting not letting yeah. an offer come in 
and start playing and, and affecting what you think your own worth is. Um, it, it's just right. been completely like, well, that's, it, it's tied to all of the things we've talked about on this podcast, because what happens is not only do you undersell your worth compared to men, but then you also carry all of the expectations for women to not be overly ambitious, to not take up too much space, to not yes. ask for too much. I'm constantly trying to figure this out. I've been at ESPN for 12 years and occasionally I get treated by young newish people like I just got here. And in my head, I always go, what if like Stephen A. Smith, and I'm not putting myself on the same place as him, but what if some guy who's been working in radio at ESPN for this long or is on TV for his, what if they asked for something, would they get the same response that mm -hmm. I'm getting right now? And it's that balance of, I can't just decide to demand more and act differently and, and put the kind of weight into rooms that those guys do because as a woman it will not sure. be received the same way so how do i balance wanting to live in the future where a strong ambitious outspoken woman who asks for what she wants and demands what she deserves is well received with the reality of take that into a space and see yep. how people now see you i love a, i love this question because this is this is what i struggle with now even in in my current life every single day i'm like you know thinking about um offers and thinking about different speaking events that I want to do. And at the end of the day, one of the things that talking to Billie Jean King recently really that stuck with me is yes, you are going to make some money here, right? Like, but more importantly, you're going to lay some groundwork for that person who's mm -hmm. going to come into the door after you. And so though you might not necessarily get everything that you need now you have to show up with the right attitude right that you're only going to let you're not going to let somebody degrade you or disrespect you um right and to kind of create a path for that next generation in some ways but then sarah i'm also like yeah, yeah but i want to get paid like i'm i'm worth something yeah. too so finding that balance right. and i don't believe that women have to spend any of their time doing any women's work or women's rights work for the betterment of the world. That's just what I'm choosing to do. Cause I also think that that's a trope like, Oh, women, we have to just right. stick together. Yeah. We've talked about this during our Gatorade, uh, women's sports advisory board is like, there's that guilt of like, I would do this for free, but when a company expects me to do it for free while paying males to do that work, what they're saying is it's on us to make our right. lives better. The marginalized then have to take on all the work of, of equality instead of the people <sighs> that are already in power who are going to then get paid and, and patted on yes. the back for showing up, which is why like in my head, I'm not, I'm not super driven by money. I, I love it. It's great. Trust me, but I do a lot of stuff for free. But in those moments where I'm doing something that I know somebody else is getting paid a shit ton for or getting valued differently, that's when you have to, like you said, take a stand because now you're creating a pattern for everyone that comes after you. Well, Abby did it for free. So now we don't feel and like we need they'll to they'll use that, right? Like they'll, they will always say to somebody, well, so-and-so's doing it, but they're doing it, you know, for free or whatever. Like we're going to donate yeah. money. Like the, the, that's the other thing that I get all the time. We'll donate money to a charity of your choice. And I'm like, do you do this with guys? Come on. Like, yeah. no, 
Yeah. Like, the guys don't need to do this. So when they do do it, <laughs> yeah. it's because they're opting in for a reason, you know? Yeah, for money. Right, which is again, it reminds me of the conversation I just had with Julie Foudy when we talked about the equal pay. Not a single guy from the men's team showed up to a single virtual or in-person negotiation for their own CBA because they never had to fight for anything. It was just given to them. And one of them actually said that. Yeah, I guess it was just more important for them to show up because they're fighting for stuff we've already had. And then you're like, wait a minute, hold on. Again, we, we come back to this idea of like, women, you should want to show up and self-promote because you need more publicity and it brings great, you know, attention to your team or your league or yourself. And you're like, and you should pay me because I'm not getting that publicity and money. You're paying the people who are already rich and ubiquitous and everywhere mm. and then expecting us to do it out of the goodness of our heart. But there's a balance there because I actually believe that too. I'm like, I will show up for women's sports stuff or underserved communities and I will do it for free because it matters to me. But it's like flipped on its head from the way it should be. For more, please subscribe and listen to That's What She Said with Sarah Spang on your smart speaker or wherever you listen to podcasts. I had such a great conversation with Abby about a whole bunch of stuff. And one of the fascinating things I find about her is that she began her life for the first 30-something years the way so many female athletes and women do, which is learning about the proximity to power that comes with being an athlete, being surrounded by male leaders, being surrounded by male uh, sort of representations of what success looks like, and then finding out when she was done with her career that she didn't have the same financial rewards and accompaniments to her success as the men did, and then pivoting to the conversations that she has with Glennon on her podcast, to the activism she's doing around women's sports and realizing that there needed to be a change in perspective and that so much of the way she had seen things before um, through that lens of a female athlete and in a male-dominated world was wrong and was misleading both her and her counterparts. Uh, it's a great conversation. Abby's just the best. Uh, huge part of that 37 words doc. So check out the doc and, of course, listen to my podcast for more of that conversation. Coming up, a profile on Rob Manfred left people asking questions about the commissioner. Does he even like the sport he represents? We'll talk about that and some other changes that may be on the way to baseball. It's coming up next on Spain and Fitz. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. As a proud graduate of Cornell University, I sometimes brag about the fact that we've got two commissioners in professional men's major sports. And then when people ask which ones, I'm like, ah, is that important? And then I have to say Gary Bettman and Rob Manfred, two of the ones that are most oft criticized for their work. We're going to talk about one of them next. It's Spain and Fitz, Solo Spain tonight, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Don Van Atta did an incredible profile of MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred after sitting down with him several times in the past year. He joins us now, ESPN senior writer, to talk about the man behind the many quotes that have sunk him in the public profile, but have earned him a whole lot of pats on the back from owners, it would seem. So, Don, I want to start with this. This is the time of year that we usually talk about, quote-unquote, fixing baseball. And yet, since he took over as commissioner, baseball is multiple billions of dollars richer and it seems to be doing pretty well. How do you reconcile the criticisms of baseball and the constant takes that it's going to go under and it's only old people with the fact that it keeps raking in the money? That's a great question, Sarah. Uh, you know, here's one of the big problems that baseball has. Most fans, nearly all fans, think the game is too slow. 
this pace of the game is just way too slow for most fans' taste. And Rob Manfred, when he got his job way back in 2014, promised the owners he was going to do something about the pace of play. But despite that, you're right. There have been two fantastic collective bargaining agreements that Rob Manfred negotiated before the last one that helped the game grow despite that slow pace of play. And so he's got to make good on his promise he made to the owners, who were very impatient that the average length of the game is three hours and five minutes this season, just five minutes shy of the all-time record last season of three hours and ten minutes. And so now it's kind of put-up-or-shut-up time for Rob Manfred. He's got to find ways to increase the pace of play, increase the offense, and try to bring more fans, particularly young fans, into the tent who will root for Major League Baseball teams. That's one of the big changes, and that's, of course, a controversial one, is the sport without a clock, to suddenly say I'm very invested in having a pitch clock and to change that drastically. He seems to be invested in a number of changes that the old-school folks would rail against, but that many others agree are sort of necessary to keep the game interesting to young folks. What else did he say uh, that some of those traditionalists might be rattled by in terms of changes that might be on the way? Well, the pitch clock is the biggest one, as you said. And Manfred told me uh, in, in one of our interviews that he's in favor of the pitch clock, and it's looking very likely that a Major League Baseball pitch clock will be introduced next year. That's the most revolutionary change, Sarah. But another one is the elimination of the shift, which uh, Manfred has also told me that he's in favor of, and we'll likely see that next season. Also, robot umpires in mm. 2024. So there will be a new system of robo-umpires introduced that season. Manfred says he's in favor of that. Uh, and like you said, a lot of uh, sort of, I think, newer fans want some of this. It's the purists, it's the old-school fans uh, that this rubs the wrong way, particularly the pitch clock. And the median age of baseball fans who watch baseball on television is 57 years old. That's Ooh. the oldest by far. And so Manfred's challenge is to try to appeal to younger fans, make the game faster, try to increase offense. And it's a very difficult balancing act because the game is the most resistant to innovation and change. Don Manata with me here on Spain and Fitz. You can follow him at DVN Jr. The owners are happy with him. And he sort of said the quiet part out loud by offering up that he is willing to be a meat shield and take the hits for those who have invested multiple billions into their teams were you surprised when he said that? And are you surprised that he's so popular with owners when publicly he doesn't get a high uh, approval rating? Well, yeah, that that's one of the most, if not the most surprising thing I heard Manfred say, Sarah, is he said that he is there to be a shield for the criticism of owners. Like you said, he said the quiet part out loud. All of us fans uh, recognize that that's a major part of every commissioner's portfolio, but I don't think you'd ever hear Roger Goodell admit that. You're not going to hear Adam Silver say that. But Manfred said, look, I'm not a guy that has 2 or $3 billion invested in a team. I'm a guy who was hired to do this job, and it's part of my job to basically, yeah, be a, be a meat shield for these owners. The owners love him. Uh, I interviewed a number of them, a couple of them on the record, they're very, very pleased for the reason you cited in your first question. Uh, when Manfred took over as commissioner, uh, Major League Baseball was an $8 billion a year business. It's now up to $10 billion and will likely continue to grow in the coming years. And they give him very, very high marks. 
The other metric, of course, that they keep their eye on is franchise valuations. They have quadrupled in the last decade. Mm. Don Van Atta with me here talking about Rob Manfred. His profile on the commissioner is available on .com now. It's fantastic. He was also on ESPN Daily today talking to Pablo on a lengthy interview. Definitely worth checking out. Um, you know, a lot of fans don't like him. Uh, he called the World Series trophy a piece of metal. He admits that that was wrong. People uh, attest that he doesn't even like baseball because of the changes that he wants to make. And others say that, uh, you know, his general approach is too lawyerly and not uh, rustic enough, not old guy who loves to sit and watch a ball game. Is that something that he needs to change? Or if, as you said, the owners are so happy with him, are they fine with his public profile amongst fans and some players and teams not being great? Well, I think that some owners are aware that Manfred is not the best communicator, that he is gas-prone. Um, that comment that he made about the World Series trophy being just a piece of metal that he did in an interview with uh, our colleague Carl Ravitch back in February of 2020 has probably cost him the most goodwill among fans and players. You know, he's aware of that. He said to me it was stupid that he said it. He apologized just a couple days after, but he still laments saying that and knows how much that cost him. You know, in my interviews with him, Sarah, he was pretty um, – self-deprecating and and really acknowledging he acknowledged more than once the fact that he's made these mistakes which surprised me but i think he is aware and why he gave me so much access over uh, so many months is because he's aware that fans on twitter uh diehard fans say he's somebody that hates baseball it's a question that i had to pose to him i led the piece with it and i even asked him how much baseball he watches in a week and it was really interesting. He sort of paused a moment as if he was doing the math and said, let me count the nights. He said, I'd probably watch a few nights, four nights a week in the evening, a game or games. That's 12 hours. And he said in his office he watches during the day, and there'll be network games that are on in the afternoon. So he says about 20 hours, but I didn't hear him say anything about Saturday or Sunday. So presumably the commissioner of baseball is not watching baseball on weekends. And so, again, that's a little bit shows, I think, his – issues he has sometimes with communication and i think he's aware of it i think some of the owners are, are aware of it and with these rules changes coming he's meeting with players in clubhouses of all 30 teams and he knows he has to basically sell the players uh particularly on the pitch clock who are dubious of it for the most part and also dubious of him and that's the challenge he's now presented with this season is this listening tour as he calls it that he's doing in all 30 clubhouses around the league. At DVN Jr. is where you can follow Don Van Atta. He's got a great profile on MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred. Before I let you go, we got about a minute left. So I want to ask about this Oakland move to Vegas and the report that they would not be charged the fees. If, indeed, they're talking expansion, which you write about in the story, to 32 teams, how frustrating or difficult would it be for other teams to swallow that there is a potential massive money that would be spread around the league uh, that they're eschewing, particularly if there was an ex expansion uh, and, and, the, and the fee to buy in if you wanted to go to Vegas would be massive? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think that if, if Oakland were to move, Sarah, the sense I got, you know, Manfred really wouldn't engage on that question with me despite my attempts to talk to him about it. But I think that if that franchise moves, if the A's move to Vegas, you still may see two additional teams because the fees will be so great. Manfred wants to get 32 teams. He told me that for the first time. And so I think if we see a move 
to Vegas. Vegas will just be off that expansion city list, and and then we'll find you know two other teams. Nashville is, is mentioned a lot. There's some talk even possibly of returning to Montreal, and and there's other cities in the mix as well. Yeah, will be interesting to see the reaction. That of course you want to save a team that already exists, but it's going to cost other teams money and that they could in theory get to waive that fee. Will be interesting to watch. Hey, really fascinating stuff, Don. Thanks so much for the time. Thank you, Sarah. Don Van Atta, you can read his work on .com, listen to the interview, and also go to ESPN Daily, check him out, talking to Pablo Torre. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Your small business keeps you on the go. Progressive Commercial Insurance keeps your policy within reach with their easy-to-use mobile app. Learn more at ProgressiveCommercial.com. Coming up, the trend of former athletes getting into a boxing ring to fight continues. Catch you up on that absurdity, plus a whole lot more. It's Quickies coming up next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz, solo Spain tonight on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Lots more to get to tonight, and y'all know how we do it when we have too much news and not enough time. It's Quickies. Quickies with Spain and Fitz. We get in and out of topics fast. We're going to start with Deshaun Watson. I wasn't on the show last night. Fitz was solo. Uh, Not too much more news today, uh, but his uh, disciplinary hearing with the NFL expected to continue through today, tomorrow. Um, Actually, Jeremy Fowler, ESPN senior NFL writer, was on SportsCenter talking about uh, how long this all might take before we get a ruling. Well, with the hearing coming Tuesday, VR Adam Schefter, that independent reviewer Sue L. Robinson will hear the Deshaun Watson case. That expedites the timeline on the NFL's potential ruling on Watson's discipline. Now, Robinson will hear the case from Watson. will also hear the case from the NFL, which is likely seeking a lengthy suspension for Watson. Now, the league has pretty much wrapped up its investigation at this point. I'm told it's been added for 18 months. It's interviewed several of the plaintiffs. It's interviewed Watson. Could do some more background work, but pretty much it's ready for a ruling. So the hope from the league and from many people involved is that there is discipline handed out by training camp. Now, this is a new process with Sue L. Robinson. The NFL and the NFLPA jointly appointed her. Roger Goodell will not make the decision on the discipline, so she could take a few weeks to decide, could take a couple days. Either way, this is being close to wrapped up, and the Players Union will have Watson's back here. They are expected to potentially appeal any ruling. Yeah, it's interesting because this Sue L. Robinson is a jointly appointed disciplinary officer paid by both the NFL and the NFL Players Association and others believe that an appeal might not be likely because they would not want to undermine her authority with her very first ruling. Uh, I am cynical enough to believe that the NFL leaked that they would like a full year suspension so that if it happens that she offers up less, they can shrug their hands and say, well, we, we, we wanted a full year. It's just not what she ruled. And they might even in the background be telling them, don't give him a full year. We'd rather have him out on the field. We're going to leak that and feel otherwise. I don't know if that's the case. But there's also a possibility they could shorten it like they've done in the past with players. Uh, we know Ben Roethlisberger had an initially longer suspension before the NFL shortened it. So... I'm not super optimistic about how this all goes down. Um, We expect a bunch of players, staff members, coaches, and fans to just be okay with this guy being in the room, putting on the uniform, you know, paying paying your money to see him, rooting for him. Uh, Whenever this suspension is over, I would like to see some transparency for sure from the league so that it's not just simply about, well, he sat out and now he's different. This has been predatory and this has gotten worse and gotten more 
uh, egregious with each time, according to reports from the massage therapist. So uh, any belief that this behavior would just stop because of the suspension, I think, is, is, is ridiculous. So we have yet to see what the ruling will be and how the NFL will handle it. But my hopes are not high for any of it. All right, next story. Quickies. Golden State Warriors superstar Steph Curry is going to host the ESPYs. Exciting news. Uh, I loved uh, Sue Bird and Megan Rapinoe hosting, but that was a bit different. It was the virtual from home situation during COVID. Uh, July 20th, we'll actually see a more old school version of the ESPYs. We'll see them out there probably in a tux or a variety of different looks, uh, serving it up on ABC. I think he's going to crush it. Uh, I expect potentially a Draymond cameo, and Lord knows that that'll look like. So I'm excited. This is a good pick by uh, by the ESPYs. All right, next story. Quickies. Uh, we're going to talk to Bobby Marks about a bunch of NBA deals, but one of them is is the Wizards finalizing a deal to acquire Will Barton, Monte Morris from Denver for Contavious Caldwell Pope and Ish Smith. The reason I'm bringing this up is because Ish Smith has set quite a record with this move. The Nuggets will be his 13th team. No other player has ever played for 13 different teams in the NBA. He was undrafted, and he started his, uh, his career with the Rockets, but then was already traded within that first season, going to the Grizzlies, uh, kept getting signed, kept getting traded. The longest stint he's ever had was three seasons with the Pistons from 16 to 19. Uh, he was with the Charlotte Hornets, then he got sent to the Wizards in February, and now on the move again. So I guess congrats to Ish Smith for being the guy that everybody can see a place for. Uh, maybe this one will stick for a little while. All right, next story. Quickies. Spain and Fit Solo Spain doing some quickies. Freddie Freeman made some news with an extremely emotional press conference in his return to Atlanta, his first visit back to the Braves since joining the Dodgers. And here's Buster Olney on Keyshawn, J. Will, and Max about Freddie Freeman's emotions in that presser. If I were to put a percentage on it, it was about 10% gratitude for the Braves fans and how they've treated him and about 90% sadness and anger over the fact that, uh, you know, he's not part of that legacy now because that's what he wanted, guys. You know, uh, and, and friends knew this, uh, that Freddie wanted to stay with the Braves. And so I think there's some frustration uh, on his part. There's a lot of frustration that it didn't work out that way. Yeah, so – Freeman has fired the Excel agency, the agency with which he negotiated the deal that ended up sending him to the Dodgers and turning down the Braves, who took on Matt Olson to replace him as the negotiations were going on. And Freeman had told some of his former teammates over the weekend, per Buster Olney, that he was going to change agents because he was frustrated with how that free agency happened. Well, now Doug Gottlieb is reporting that when he was back in Atlanta, Freeman learned that his agent didn't tell him about the final Braves extension offer, that he had wanted to be a Brave for the rest of his career, that he would have taken a little less to stay with the Braves, and that potentially his agent didn't give him that final amount because the cut was bigger, the deal was bigger with the Dodgers. Now, if that's true, wow. Wow. That would be unbelievable. And you have to feel for a guy because those emotions certainly didn't just feel like a homecoming even if he's from there, even if he wanted to play there and it didn't work out. Uh, so that's going to be interesting to see now how things play out with the Dodgers, both his teammates and the fans, if they've now recognized that he doesn't want to be there and would have rather stayed in Atlanta. All right, next story. Quickies. I don't want to spend too long on this. I just want to say Adrian Peterson and Le'Veon Bell have signed deals for a boxing exhibition in July. 
my thoughts on this are one, you're in a sport with endless hits and potential risks of CTE. You make millions of dollars in that sport and then you actively choose to go do something that involves more blows to the brain. It's difficult enough to reconcile when young up and coming athletes who don't have much of a choice are using boxing to try to make something of themselves and make money for their family and themselves. But when you do it, when you've already got millions from a different sport that already damaged you enough, it's really hard to swallow. Secondarily, Adrian Peterson got to skate a lot lighter than he should have for what he did to his son, the abuse. So I think watching athletes who have been credibly accused or charged with abusing their wives or kids should not then get to make money boxing and us enjoy it. I think that's absolutely sick. More NBA talk. Bobby Marks coming up next. Spain and Fitz. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz. Solo Spain with you tonight on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, NBA free agency tomorrow. So many questions swirling around the league. That feels like a fair amount of parody, especially when we look at some of the teams that could be losing uh, some superstars. To talk about all of it, Bobby Marks joins me now, ESPN NBA front office insider. Let's start with the most important thing. Any chance the Bulls are losing Zach Levine? I don't think so. I think when if you put a five-year, two hundred and fifteen million dollars contract <laughs> on the line, I think that's going to be, I think that's going to be pretty hard to uh, turn down. I think the only question for me will be if all five years are guaranteed. Um, but yeah, I think we will expect to see uh, Zach in a uh, in a Chicago uniform. Phew. You like that move, right? I mean, I don't think, think they really ha- got much yeah. of an option. Yeah. I think, you, I mean, like, what are you going to, I mean, like, basically, what are you going to let him go? And then you basically right. have traded away, you know, a lot to get, you know, DeMar and build that roster. And as you know, I mean, a lot of it just depends on Lonzo, right? I mean, yeah. like the health just, of Lonzo. You have Lonzo yeah. and Caruso and those guys, you really are a contender. 27 and 13 when they yeah. got, you know. So, yeah, I think we'll see Zach back in, uh, certainly right. back in Chicago. Good. Very important. Uh, Let's talk about the most uh, recent deal. Hawks trading Danilo Gallinari and multiple first-round picks to the Spurs for DeJounte Murray. What do you make of the deal for both sides? It's a deal that I felt like there was first-round picks burning the hole of Travis Schlenk, the Hawks GM's pockets here. I think when you're in that six to eight range or even, you know, they were a play-in, it's like how do you kind of take that next step and – you know, they gave away two unprotected ones in 25 and 27. Ironically, that's probably when Murray could become a free agent. But I think they realized that the continuity factor that they went through last year, they brought back, you know, Trey Young and Clint Capella, John Collins, uh, spent a lot of money here that it wasn't going to work again this year. And uh, you give a guy, you give, uh, you know, Trey Young another backcourt mate. I mean, I, I like it just because of the Gallinari swap, but certainly down the road, I guess those picks could come back and, and, and get you a little bit. But for right now, I think it's certainly an, an upgrade for uh, for Atlanta. What do you make of the news of Beal opting out? I think it's just financial because sorry, his number would have been 36 million. That can bump up to about 43 um, because he's hit this year's of service in his in his contract. So, I think you're looking at you know potentially five for 250, or as we say, a quarter billion dollars in uh, in free agency, which is a lot of money to uh, you know certainly to go back to 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 the Wizards. Um, so I think I think I think he he stays also. Yeah. Uh, We're talking to Bobby Marks about NBA free agency, 6 p.m. Eastern tomorrow. Another player that is rumored to be opting out only to get back in is James Harden with the opportunity to make it easier for them to sign some stars and have a chance to win, which, of course, would be very James Harden-like to put uh, the greater good ahead of his. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of someone else. Do you actually think that's going to happen? 
I think it will happen. It's it's almost like giving like one of those like high interest loans. Like it looks good in the beginning, and then you might have to pay them in the back end, right? Like you're paying high interest. I think what you'll probably see is uh, the number to come in around. So he left 47 on the table to come in around 36, um, and that gives him the ability to go out and and sign two players. And then I'm expecting, I would be surprised if it's not a four-year contract, and that $10 million that he gave back is going to be in that fourth year with, uh, with Harden. Are you cool with that? Because I look at Harden just like Irving where I'm saying, I do not want my team giving that person a long-term deal. Yeah, I mean, back in February I had said it was, you know, the 5 for 270 was probably the worst in NBA history, probably all of sports here. And I think you have to be content with it. Right. I don't know if you can be happy with it. I think you, you're hoping that a he gets in shape, a he's he- b he's healthy, and c you know certainly the dynamics between him and Embiid. But mm-hmm. you know it's it's one of those you know this is who they've traded for in the Simmons deal, and they've got you know everybody's got to make it work. And we know Daryl Morey hitched himself to that for some time, and and uh, is going to keep believing in it. Bobby Marks, ESPN NBA front office insiders, with me here, solo Spain, Spain and Fitz. Uh, the Knicks are going after Jalen Brunson, but he is also taking some other meetings. And when the name the Miami Heat pops up, all I can think is that the Knicks are ready for another broken heart. Even if Brunson's dad is now employed by Tom Thibodeau and, you know, working on a staff. So uh, where do you see this going? Where do you see him ending up? It's, I love that Miami's in every meeting, right? Like they don't have any money. to get, they, don't have, they got like $6 million to go out and get Jalen Brunson. But Pat Riley gets a seat at the table at every one of these these uh, you know key free agents here. I mean, I would be stunned if it's not New York just based on I mean, you have already cl- cleared out close to 30 million dollars in, in contracts. The trades haven't happened yet. And if it's not Jalen Brunson, who who is it going to be? You know, Kyrie went back to Brooklyn. I don't think it's Tyus Jones in in Memphis. Um it's not going to be probably one of these big restricted free agents, Miles Bridges or DeAndre Ayton. So I I'm just I would be really surprised if it isn't Jalen Brunson. So if that does happen and Brunson is gone, what's the move for the Mavs? Not good. I mean, yeah. their salaries. You know, when you did the Porzingis trade and you took Dinwiddie and Bertans back, you're you're like six million dollars over the luxury tax. So basically, if you had brought Brunson back, let's say for twenty five million, it would have cost you like a hundred million just for one guy. So I think when you look at Dallas, it's you know you made the Christian Wood trade with uh, Houston. Um, you're going to have to rely heavily on on Dinwiddie unless some of the other players, the Maxi Kleber, the Bertons, they turn into uh, Tim Hardaway Jr. will be back. Uh, he was out most of last year. Turn maybe into something else, but that's it's a big that's a big blow. I mean, a guy that's averages probably close to 20 points, and you don't get anything back in return for him. I love all the excitement about skinny Luca as if Luca wasn't doing enough already. It's like, okay, so he's going to be even better with still no one around him to make it matter. Uh, but I guess congrats to him on, on the, the muscles. Uh, Bobby Marks is with me talking NBA free agency starts at 6 p.m. Eastern tomorrow. Let's talk about the Jazz. Do you anticipate a divorce and who are they more invested in building around and which one leaves and goes off somewhere else? Yeah, I mean, I think once they hire their coach, Will Hardy, I think it may, you know certainly sets the wheels in motion a little bit here as far as figuring out how does this roster get better and if it's not outside of Conley and and Rudy Gobert is it you know uh, Bojan Bogdanovic Mike Conley Royce O'Neal and I think if you're looking at Mitchell or Gobert if you had to pick who had who stays and who goes I would think certainly Gobert would be the likely based on um, you know certainly 
breaking that number up at $30 million and maybe balancing the roster out. I think Donovan's probably, they see him more as a fran- franchise-level player. Um, it's hard, though. I mean, he's making 38 this year, and you got to take like $32, $33 million back. So I think I don't think we see anything right off the bat in free agency. I think this is something that, you know, sometime in mid-July or maybe we get into late July here that, you know, we start hearing a little bit more Gobert news. It sounds like the Suns, according to Brian Windhorse, believe they could find a number of other centers who can give them the production DeAndre Atron can. Is that a good move to say goodbye to Aiton? And does it feel like that's inevitable anyway because of the ways they've issued that, that signing and, and made him angry? I think it's a big mistake. I just look at where Phoenix is. Aiton, I think, is only 23 years old. I know $31 million is a lot to invest in a center if it's not, you know, Embiid or, or uh, Jokic here. And I look at it, Phoenix, like the window is closing, right? I think the window yeah. is closing. They can go from being the number one seed in the Western Conference to the sixth seed in a hurry. Um, based mm-hmm. on how good the Clippers are going to probably be, and we'll see what happens with Denver. New Orleans, certainly Memphis will be there, Golden State, of course. Um, so I think if you're not comfortable paying him, then trade him. Trade him six months from now, seven right. months from now. I think he still ha- will have value here. And I I think what they did was they saw you know Bismarck Biombo and ja- JaVale McGee play when Aiton was out, and they're like, you know what? We can pay a guy six or seven million dollars and get maybe a similar production and maybe try to use some of that money elsewhere. And I think it's a, I think it's a big mistake. At Bobby Marks forty two is where you can follow me, ESPN NBA front office insider. Uh, let's talk quickly about the Clippers. If everybody's healthy and available, which is like the biggest if of all time, I love the idea of Kawhi and Paul George and Wall all playing for the Clippers. But how likely do you think that is? Well, that's the big if, right? I mean, I always say in the offseason, we're, we're like, all it's the honeymoon period. We all love our rosters, and still we start playing, and there's some injuries here. I think on paper, they are the second-best team in the Western Conference with a healthy Kawhi and Paul, and you mentioned John Wall. We'll see. I think you look at them, they've got 11, basically 11 starters on this uh, on this roster here, and they potentially could be really good. They have a great coach. I mean, you saw Ty Lue, what he was able to do mm-hmm. with – with Kawhi out and in dealing with a lot of injuries here. So they've got a, they've got a chance, but as you know, it's just going to, you know, you have two guys, it's really, you have two guys on your roster who do not, did not play at all last year. And now you're expecting, you know, so much from each. Yeah, absolutely. So many question marks there, but it'd be really fun if they could all play and to see them all playing together. All right. Last one for you. We've managed to avoid talking about Kyrie this entire time. I'm going to have you look into your crystal ball and tell me, in January or February, will Kyrie Irving have played more games than Sat? Will they be looking to trade him? Will Kevin Durant be looking to find a different partner to close out his time with the Nets? I think if we're in January and February and Brooklyn is around 500, I think you, you will probably be seeing the Kyrie Irving trade rumors and news and come about here. And I think that's what happens when you have a guy on an expiring contract and he's an all-star and there's such, you know... I don't want to say bad blood right now, but there's it, it just doesn't feel good, right? It's mm-hmm. just like it's just like it doesn't feel like everything is is great in Brooklyn right now. So I would say if 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 this team is struggling come February with the trade deadline, I think I think you're probably likely to see Kyrie Irving on a on a different team than in than in Brooklyn. Yeah. Well, and he set himself up obviously for this opt-in if things go well, but if they go poorly, he has no control over where he goes now. And there's some interesting teams that would be looking for that expiring contract. Uh, so it could get could get fun. Hey, Bobby, thanks so much for all the insight. Appreciate it. Thanks, Sarah.
Bobby Marks, ESPN NBA front office insider at Bobby Marks 42 is where you can follow him. Stay up to date ahead of tomorrow's free agency starts at 6 Eastern. Finally, we asked your bold predictions for NBA free agency. We'll see what you said next. Plus, does the WNBA need to change its all-star game format and a big debut for a star tonight? We'll tell you all about it next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. We asked you for some of your bold predictions that you actually believe will happen in NBA free agency tomorrow. You didn't give me any that were too bold. I did ask you to make sure they were, you know, realistic, something that something that you could see. Uh, the worst, of course, was from one of our favorite listeners, Kaz, who sees Zach Levine going to the Pacers. Absolutely not. First of all, no, not going to happen. Secondly, how dare you say that to me on my show? Absolutely no, Kaz, to that. It's Spain and Fitz, Solo Spain, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. Just talked to Bobby Marks about all the different things that could go down. Uh, another frequent listener, Angry Bears fan, Dadman, says, Rudy Gobert becomes a Bull and the Bulls re-sign Levine. I don't see it happening. I don't think they have the cash for that. And I don't know that they need it, not that I wouldn't want Gobert, and of course a good big would be huge, a defensive presence, but they just got to get healthy, and they're in the mix there. Um, I think Gobert will probably end up staying with the Jazz. Uh, Brian Klinger thinks Gobert's going to go to San Antonio, um, but before the trade today, and now he thinks everyone's just going to say, you know, quiet offseason, we're disappointed, we're stuck. I could definitely see that happening. I do not see LeBron opting out. D. Lowrida. I think that's stuck. Uh, Kimitron says Beal to the Mavs. You know, as we heard from Bobby, I think Beal is just going to restructure and opt back in for more money. Uh, Bulls will sign Mo Bamba. Already happened, so that's good. Uh, Javier Vigia says the Nets trade Simmons for Aiton. Hmm. I don't think that's going to happen, but, I mean, if Aiton's looking for somewhere to go, uh, Simmons certainly hasn't established himself with the Nets in any way that would prevent them from sending him that way. I don't know if that's something the Suns want, though. That's not the kind of guy that they're looking for if they get rid of Aiton. So, uh, interesting predictions. Tomorrow, 6 p.m. Eastern is when the trade deadline, or sorry, free agency starts for NBA. So you will be able to actually see if any of your bold predictions start to come true. I have a bold prediction, and that is that many of you out there are unaware of the pretty important debut that's happening tonight. 9 p.m. Central, I believe, is the start time for Aces Seattle. Why is this so important? Well, first of all, the Aces, Las Vegas Aces, 14-4, and four, sitting in first in the West. Seattle Storm, 11-7, right behind them. But because Tina Charles will be making her debut, presumably, for the Storm, she just parted ways with the Mercury midway through the season. It's kind of expected. She wasn't super happy there. But she had decided between the Mercury and the Storm in the offseason, had, had decided on Phoenix and wasn't happy there. Uh, didn't think she was being used the right way and has now signed a rest of the season contract with the Storm. Now, Tina Charles averaged 17-plus points, 7-plus rebounds, 2-plus assists in the 16 games for the Mercury. Second leading scorer there. So unhappy with her role despite success. She's a former MVP and now she ends up with the Storm, which gives them four number one overall picks on their roster. And it has you questioning exactly what went wrong with the Mercury. She, of course, says she didn't think she was being used enough. I think it was the second lowest 
attempted field goals uh, in her career. And Sophie Cunningham, of all people, uh, making some news by yelling F Tina Charles at the end of their win after Tina left the team. So certainly some tea to spill. No love lost there, and I'm sure there will be more digging into just all the details of what went wrong. This is the second team Tina Charles has forced her way out of. So maybe there's something there. But now she ends up with the Storm, who, despite having a stacked roster, are not doing as well as they had hoped. And some of that stems from their reserves not stepping up. Mercedes Russell, their center, uh, has been limited to just five games. She's got a recurrent headache syndrome that has emerged. But Brianna Stewart, Jewel Lloyd, Sue Bird, uh, Magbagor, there's there's a couple that have been really putting it down. And then a lot of the reserves just really haven't showed up. They're last in the league in rebounding percentage. They're 11th in points in the paint. They need some help. And Tina Charles could be a huge front court weapon for them. Makes things really interesting. Presumably we will see her tonight against the Aces, a team that has been uh, leading a lot of picks for the title. And then, of course, just while I'm talking about this, I should mention the Sky because they won again today and they're fantastic and they're crushing it. And Candace Parker is doing massive things. Massive things. If you haven't been watching Candace Parker this season, uh, you are missing out. She is the first player in WNBA history with 6,000 points, 3,000 rebounds, 1,500 assists. She's dropping triple doubles. Uh, make it a point to catch the sky when they're playing. She's been absolutely fantastic. Uh, speaking of Candace Parker, she is among the sky players on the roster for the WNBA All-Star Game coming up in about a week and a half here. It's going to be here in Chicago, which is super fun because in addition to Candace, you've got Kalia Copper, you've got Emma Mieseman, you've got Courtney Vandersloot. So four Sky players going to be in that All-Star game. But when they were announcing the reserves for the All-Star game, it had people talking about an issue that's come up in the NBA too. And that's how they pick them and where they're rostered on their websites and how that affects who gets in. LaChina Robinson, ESPN, WNBN, NBA analyst, talked about that. Now, my kind of issue with this list is they're missing Alicia Gray from Dallas. And what I think the problem is, is the voting. Now, the head coaches are allowed to vote by, by position, and they can vote for three guards, five front court players, and four players at either position, regardless of conference. But it depends on how you're listed on your team's roster. Alicia Gray is only listed as a guard, so she could only be in that group. To me, she's a guard forward. She's a three, right. much like Kalia Copper. So that might have been some of the reason why we did not see Alicia Gray. So your Gray. PR for your, for your organization, just list your players as all five positions. Yeah. Then they're open for the vote because, you know, how do you list a player like Jonquil Jones, Candace Parker? You can't put them in a box anymore. Vote for players that the fans want to see because that's what the All-Star Game is about is a show. It is definitely about the fans. Yeah, and we talked about this, if you remember, Jokic and Embiid, both centers. You know, you can vote for either as a forward. Both can be on the first team, but they assign positions to every player, and so it makes it tougher. Positionless voting would be better in both the NBA and the WNBA so that you catch those people who are rostered in one spot. And LaChina went on uh, to talk about, for instance, someone like Candace Parker, who runs the point and is a big, plays every position. Uh, so I think that's something to consider moving forward. By the way, really pumped for the WNBA All-Star Game to be here in Chicago. Was just talking to the woman who brings all the different sporting events to Chicago, weighs in on whether we want, you know, uh, the World Cup or 
sailing or tennis or anything else. And she said they're really trying to do it up here in Chicago with a lot of the same effort that they put into the NBA All-Star just a couple years ago. I'm pumped about that. I think there's a real opportunity to continue growing the game, and the season has been fantastic. Uh, so Chicago is a great place to keep that going, especially with four Chicago Sky players on the roster. And Candace Parker doing what she's doing en route to a repeat. I said it. I said it and I meant it. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.